Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and today we'll be talking with award-winning journalist, economist, and broadcaster, Tim Harford. Tim is best known for his long-running Financial Times column, The Undercover Economist, and for hosting the BBC Radio 4 program, More or Less, where he explains and sometimes debunks the numbers and statistics used in political debate, the news, and everyday life. In addition to that, Tim is also a best-selling author, and today he joins us to discuss his latest book, How to Make the World Add Up, 10 Rules for Thinking Differently About Numbers. Let's take a listen to our conversation with Tim now. Tim Harford, welcome to Conversations with Data. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Looking forward to the conversation. I just wanted to start with, you know, a little bit about you telling us about your career. You know, you're an economist, a journalist, a broadcaster. How did it all begin? And where did your love for quirky numbers first come from? Uh, I could make this a long story. I'll try and keep it brief. So I studied at PPE at Oxford University, which is the classic degree for people who have no idea what they want to do with their lives. And uh, PPE stands for Philosophy, Politics and Economics. And I thought I would quit economics. Um, and I was persuaded by uh, a wonderful man called Peter Sinclair not to quit economics. And uh, my new book is dedicated to Peter, uh, who, who sadly died this year. Having been persuaded to stick with economics, I ended up teaching uh, in Ireland for a year at University College Cork. I did a master's degree back at Oxford. Uh, and then I did two or three other things, including working in scenario planning for the oil company Shell and uh, working for the World Bank before finally joining the Financial Times. That was in 2006. I joined as a leader writer and as a columnist. And it was about the same time that my book, The Undercover Economist, was published. And at the same time, uh, a TV show based on the book was broadcast by BBC Two. And then shortly after that, I was asked if I would present more or less on BBC Radio 4, which is a program all about the numbers. So yeah, it was one of those strange things where as far as my journalism career went, uh, nothing happened for about 10 years, and then everything happened all at once. And it's only, we're now 15 years on from that, and I, I now realize quite how extraordinary it was and quite how fortunate I was that um, there was so much interest in my work all at the same time. Um, now, where did the love of numbers come from? Uh, well, I had to learn it after I became presenter of more or less. So much of my training as an economist actually didn't really prepare me to think about statistics it's a different discipline. Obviously, there are numbers in economics. There's statistical analysis in economics. Um, but it, it, it is a different thing. And so I found myself picking up a lot uh, along the way. And one of the things I think I've learned is that I think the difference between good statistical journalism and good journalism in general is maybe not as big as some people think. Right. Now, you've just published your new book, How to Make the World Add Up, 10 Rules for Thinking Differently About Numbers. You know, Tell us about it. Who did you have in mind when you first came up with this? 
The book is really an attempt to help people think clearly about the world, first and foremost. And my argument is that numbers, statistics are a good way to do that. There are a lot of things that we can only understand about the world. There are patterns we can only perceive if we have the data, if we are able to, to use statistics. They're a, they're a tool for showing us the way the world is in the same way that um, air traffic control needs radar or uh, an astronomer needs a telescope. So we social scientists uh, need statistics. So that's the basic argument of the book. And what has disturbed me is so much of the way we think about statistics is in the mode of uh, fact-checking and in, and in particular debunking. So the most popular book ever published about statistics is reportedly How to Lie with Statistics by Daryl Huff, who's, who's a journalist. I think it's very striking and very worrying that the most popular take on statistics is from cover to cover a warning against misinformation, especially when you hear what Daryl Huff ended up doing with his career in the end, which is pretty dark. Um, there's so much more we can do. We can use statistics to illuminate the world. And so that's what, the, that's what the book is trying to do. That's what the book is trying to argue for. And in particular, it's just aiming at uh, helping ordinary uh, citizens have a little bit more confidence in their own judgment and showing them how to apply their own judgment to figure out what's true and what's not and what are the right sort of questions to ask. And I wonder if this statistical pessimism you talk about in the book and, and just now, you know, is this based on anecdotal evidence that you've seen when you're talking to people or was that based on actual numbers? I, I'm, I'm not making a claim that things are getting worse. I don't know if things are getting worse. I, I do simply observe that we very often just fall into the mode of debunking. When people talk about my Radio 4 series, more or less, they will often say, oh, well, this is, the, this is the series that debunks dodgy statistics. And we often talk about ourselves in that way. Um, I think, and that is, I think, a, a mistake to, to, to reflexively fall into that way of speaking. Uh, and, I mean, I do it, and I see my fellow geeks doing it all the time. Um, the, because it's fun, you know, we're trying to get people interested in statistics. What better way to get people interested in statistics than to find some idiot who's doing it wrong, or some criminal who's doing it wrong, some lying politician, and expose them? But you, only, you only have to look at some of the most popular books, not just How to Lie with Statistics, but... Um, I think the second most popular book about statistics is probably, I've got no data on this one, but it's probably Ben Goldacre's book, Bad Science, which is great. But again, from, it is from cover to cover, a list of people doing statistics wrong. Um, this, is the, this is the way we tend to, to frame things. And it's probably even more so now with COVID-19 when people are comparing different countries and saying, oh, this data isn't useful because we don't have, not everyone's testing the same way, you know, not everyone is counting deaths the same way. Um, until we get that excess death data, we can't really compare it, you know. So I just wonder, how do you respond to that? You know, is that still an indicator and can it still be useful for governments? So the, the pandemic has been traumatic, of course. Uh, it has also been refreshing the point of view of somebody reporting on the data and trying to, trying to help people understand the world through the numbers. We also fact-checked the last 
three or four British elections, the last couple of US presidential elections, the Brexit referendum. And these are environments where some people are very keen to understand the issues, but a large number of people do not want to think about the issues. They want to be right. They want to be on the right side of things. They, uh, they want to be on the winning side of things. They want to be told they're right. They want to be told their side is right. And they want ammunition for that. That's just human nature. What was interesting and encouraging about the pandemic, for all the trauma of it, was that here was suddenly a situation where people wanted to know the truth. They're just like, what is going on? Where is this, where is this virus? How fast is it spreading? How dangerous is it? Who is most at risk? Tell me what's going on. Of course, we have now seen it polarised. It's become a political issue in the US. Uh, it's become a political issue in the UK. There are conspiracy theorists and there you've got the... Um, You've got these wings of the debate where you've got the zero COVID advocates and you've got the lockdown skeptics and you've got a lot of spin, a lot of nonsense. But still, fundamentally, a lot of people are still trying to understand the world. So that, that has been encouraging. And the book, How to Make the World Head Up, was I was going to send it to the publishers at the end of March. And by the end of March, we were in lockdown in the UK. And I said to my publishers, I need another month because everything that I've written in the book is all suddenly coming true. Uh, I'm suddenly, all of, all of the points I was, was making are being underlined by reality, because I'm, I was arguing, look, this stuff matters. This is not just a vector for political bullshit. This is, this is not just a, a weapon in some argument. The, the, these statistics are things that we use to understand the world we live in. And suddenly along comes COVID, and I'm, I'm, it's a hell of a time to be proved right. It's like, do you see what I've been saying for the last 10 years? Like, this stuff is, is not, it's not just about winning some parliamentary debate. It, it's actually, it's real stuff. People are living and dying. People are making life or death decisions based on this data. So um, it wasn't very hard to, to rewrite the book. It's adding coronavirus-related examples because they just, they very much echoed what I was trying to say. I just wonder if you think that, you know, the case numbers and the death numbers in certain countries, let's say the UK, do you think that this, this is still an indicator, right? This is still useful data for governments. It's enormously useful. It's enormously important. We just need to be aware of the limitations. Right. So as I think anyone who's been paying attention will know, um, the, the issue with the, with the case count is, well, what's a case? A case is, is a positive coronavirus test. Um, well, that's a function of the testing system, right? Um, and we, we saw in the UK, we saw the government lost 15,000 cases down the back of the sofa. It was absolutely incredible um, indication of the importance of some of the hidden kind of plumbing of, of data management. They were using the wrong tool, Microsoft Excel, and they were using an outdated version of that tool. and just didn't have enough rows in the spreadsheet to handle all the cases, and they just disappeared. The system didn't didn't degrade gracefully, the, the, these cases just dropped off. And everyone was like, oh, we, we thought we were in the middle of a massive second wave, but it looks like maybe not. And they didn't get passed to the contact tracers. I mean, it was just a disaster. Um, so that's an example of how the official case count it is dependent on the performance of the testing system. Um, 
but you still want to pay attention to the official case count, right? That's one of the things you learn. Ideally, you, you're looking for other indicators. In England, Wales, Northern Ireland, the Office for National Statistics publishes an infection survey, which is based on what we hope is a representative sample of the population. So that's a better source of data, even though it's a fairly small sample, and even though there are error bars, it is at least representative. But you've got to go deeper than that, because it turns out, um, my understanding is, this is something that was pointed out to me the last couple of days, it doesn't include people living communally, so it doesn't include hospitals or nursing homes or prisons. So you're like, okay, that's fine, you know, let's understand the trend is still highly informative. It doesn't include students in halls of residence. Ah, okay, all the students just went back to university, this could be a big problem, that this could be a big bias in that data. So you're constantly looking at the data, hopefully in a critical way, in a curious way, but just trying to understand what's going on. Once you run into somebody who is trying to use the data to make an argument, like we need to lock down immediately or we need to never lock down ever again, it's not making us smarter, right? But hopefully good journalists are not interested in making an argument. They're interested in understanding the world and showing other people what they see. Now, in your book, you talk about, you know, the importance of getting the backstory. And in fact, it's a whole chapter. And I just wondered, you know, and this is obviously something you do very well as a journalist and an economist. Um, you know, what advice do you have for other journalists, particularly data journalists, you know, when, when it's about you're looking at a spreadsheet and you're trying to figure out what's going on, you know, how do you how do you get the backstory? And, and you know, what, what's your advice? Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of things to bear in mind. Uh, one is that just because you've got the you've got a wonderful spreadsheet in front of you um, doesn't mean that you shouldn't be picking up the phone and talking to people, talking to experts who might understand the data better than you, talking to the people who created the data, just trying to understand. Um, one of the one of the other chapters is it warns people against premature enumeration. Premature enumeration is when you've got all the numbers and you start analyzing and plotting graphs and taking averages and doing doing all the cool things that we data journalists like to do with numbers before you actually understand what it is that those numbers are describing. And very often there will be really important facts about the data that are not in the spreadsheet. They're in the footnotes or they, or they, they won't be visible at all unless you have a conversation with somebody about how the data um, were, were produced. Um, one story that we covered on more or less a year or so ago was about uh, infant mortality in the UK. So there was an uptick in infant mortality. And so the Guardian newspaper published a, a story about this saying, well, why is this? Is it because... Um, the government has cut funding to the NHS? Is it because um, mums are too fat and they smoke? The Guardian being the Guardian didn't put it like that, but you know, that, was, that was the, you know, whose fault is this? Um, but it turns out that if you looked at the British Medical Journal, doctors writing to the British Medical Journal were saying, we don't think this is actually happening. We think that what is happening is that um, very early births used to be classed as late miscarriages and now they're being classed as live births followed almost immediately by the death of this, this very premature baby. Um, and that shift in reporting was being driven, I think, 
it was coming from the right place. It was being driven by the experience of parents who felt that what was happening, and these are, um, it's a very upsetting subject to talk about, but these are uh, pregnancies that have gone to maybe 22, 23 weeks. Uh, and, and these parents are finding that their experience of, of loss is being just being described as a miscarriage. And they're feeling that does not describe what they've gone through. And so the medical profession are going, okay, we hear you, we will describe this in a different way. But the practical implication is that the statistics are starting to show it, an increase in infant mortality, whereas in fact that, that is not what's happening. Um, that's, I think, an important example of really trying to understand what it is that is being described by these numbers. Because they can shift in their meaning, because definitions change. I mean, clearly the, the, the dividing line between what is a baby and what is a fetus is one of the most contentious dividing lines in politics and in moral philosophy. So why on earth a statistician, you know, could, you know, why we think a statistician could just draw that line and, and it's never going to shift? You know, of course, when you think about it, you realize there's a story to be told there. And so your advice is definitely pick up, you know, the phone and talk to some experts, but also do some research in other, you know, scientific journals, if, if that's what it's related to and find yeah. out why. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it's not necessarily going to be obvious to to the experts, but it's likely to be more obvious to the experts than it is to you as a journalist. The challenge that a data journalist faces is that their expertise will generally be in data, right? Uh, analyzing data, gathering data, plotting data, rather than in, say, maternal health. So again, I mean, maybe maybe the journalist whose beat is is the health service might actually know this know about this issue already but yeah you're not necessarily going to have the background to the definitions behind the numbers so that's why you need to pick up the phone and look at the footnotes and another thing that a lot of journalists have done maybe at the telegraph i've heard this they've partnered with a specialist journalist who focuses on an area and then the data journalists focus on it, and then they come together with both of their expertise and at least that person that has the contacts to pick up the phone yeah. and figure it out you know it's it's a it's a it's a great idea. It make, absolutely makes sense. Um, and you know, I would think I, I I write for the Financial Times, and so I, I'm a columnist, so columnists tend to be slightly lone wolf uh, wolf characters in their in the way they operate. But the the culture at the Financial Times is is very collegiate. People are looking out for each other and supporting each other. Um, I've never written for another newspaper, but I understand that not all newspapers work like that. But that that sort of collaboration is very important because, yeah. yes, as you say, you, somebody's got the, somebody's got the background knowledge, somebody's got the contacts, somebody else actually knows how to how to plot a graph. I'm curious, given your background, you know, as a columnist for the Financial Times, your show, you know, more or less, you know, and you've written so many books, like, where do you get your ideas from? Like, what's your creative process? And and how do you make it so digestible for your audience? I think that's the thing that's most interesting about your writing is I, I can read it. I can, I, it's, it's very understandable. Yeah. Uh, it's very kind of you. Thank you. So where, <laughs> where do I get my ideas? I mean, the world is full of ideas, right? Um, so, I mean, a couple of things that I think I do that may be slightly different from what other people do. Although, I mean, fundamentally, we're all the same, right? We're all walking, marching through the world looking for ideas. But um, So one thing is I find things that happen in the real world interesting. And because I'm a nerd, I'm always looking for a nerdy perspective on that. 
my very first book, The Undercover Economist, was mostly a question of me going, huh, hmm, when I sit in Starbucks, it looks like this. Why does it look like this? Is there an, is there an explanation in economic theory as to why it looks like this? So it's me sort of trying to figure out what it is that I'm seeing in the world, but, but using this quite nerdy lens. And that, that was a sort of a particular thing that I did that um, is not unique to me by any means, but is not, you know, it's not typical for a journalist. And the other thing is um, I'm often trying to make connections between one thing and another that are not obvious. So, um, for example, right now, as I speak to you, I'm trying to figure out, I've been reading about um, slip bases, slip bases, and I've been reading about them in The 99% Invisible City, which is a new book about design and all the kind of curious little designed elements of the built environment all around us. It's based on a great podcast uh, called 99% Invisible. I've been reading about slip bases, and slip bases are a way of attaching signs to, to the pavement. So like you've got a stop sign, or you've got a traffic light, or whatever. It's attached to the pavement. And the slip base means that when you accidentally run a car into it, it snaps in a particular way, and the sign flips over the car without crushing the, the base of the car. So I was just thinking, okay, that's really interesting. Um, what else in the world is designed to fail in that uh, clever, graceful way? What, and I started thinking about the test and trace system, uh, which failed in a sort of catastrophic and graceless way. Um, so that just gives you a, you know, a sense of like, I'm reading a book about design, I'm, I'm hearing about this kind of everyday thing that we overlook, and I'm thinking to myself, um, what's the parallel in um, the US electoral process? What's the parallel in how we build nuclear power stations? What's the parallel in the economy? Um, and that's a sort of fairly typical, nerdy, half-Audian um, rabbit hole for me to disappear down. Like, here are two things that don't look like they're the same, um, but maybe there is a parallel. And I wonder um, if you could talk a little bit, I watched your TED talk on slow motion multitasking and, and how you can use that to create, you know, to increase your natural creativity. Um, do you use that yourself? Do you have lots of different serious hobbies or serious passion projects alongside all the different work you do? Yeah, the, the, so the slow motion multitasking idea is just that um, uh, everybody you've ever heard of who's ever done anything interesting was doing several other things at the same time, is, is my observation. So Einstein, Darwin, the choreographer, Twyla Tharp, the novelist and film script writer, Michael Crichton, you know, Jurassic Park and so on. Um, they've all got multiple projects on the go at the same time. So I call this slow motion multitasking. And, the, and my argument is that it's, it's, a, it's a good way to be creative. Uh, you deal with problems like frustration, like getting blocked, and different ideas cross-fertilize each other. As I was just talking about the slip bases and what can we learn about test and trace from the way street furniture is designed. So do I do this myself? Yeah, I do it myself. My sixth book, Messy, I stopped halfway through the process of writing it and wrote my fifth book, The Undercover Economist Strikes Back. And then when I finished writing The Undercover Economist Strikes Back, I picked up Messy again and kept on writing it. Um, Undercover Economist Strikes Back was partly inspired by a brief experiment in column writing, which was a dialogue. So 
you know, every now and then you see these columns written as dialogues. And I, and I wrote a column for a couple of years that was a dialogue. It was called Since You Ask. And I thought, well, that would be the right way to talk about macroeconomics, because macroeconomics is kind of weird and confusing. And I think two people kind of being puzzled about it together is the best way to write about that. So those two things cross-fertilized. Um, there are difficulties in working that way. It can be stressful. You can lose th the thread of things. But I find that overall, there are huge advantages. Most obviously creative. You learn things doing one project that help you in another project. You can try out ideas in an 800-word column that later maybe inspire a 3,000-word podcast or a 6,000-word book chapter. Um, but also, if you just get frustrated, something happens, uh, you get knocked back on something, the idea that you have some, these other projects to turn to is, I think, hugely helpful. Um, I realize not everyone likes to work that way, and not everyone has the privilege to work that way. But uh, I've always found it worked for me. And, I, and I've, it's gone back a long way. So when I used to do scenario planning at Shell, I, I, work, I took two, two mornings off a week. I worked a four-day week with two free mornings, and I wrote The Undercover Economist in those two free mornings. And I found that to be really helpful because it was a very interesting job, but you're working for a multinational oil company. So there are some things that get you down about that. And it was really much easier to deal with my frustrations knowing that, hey, I already wrote 2,000 words this morning and I loved it. Um, so, yeah, I don't just give TED Talks advising people to behave like this. I do actually behave like this. <laughs> Now, what do other journalists need to do to sort of get their head around statistics and feel comfortable with numbers? I mean, do we need to study, you know, the economy? What should we be doing so we can feel more comfortable with numbers and have a better grasp of what's going on in the world? I think hold on to the principles of journalism, curiosity, tenacity, um, you know, being skeptical without being cynical. Uh, trying to figure out what's, what's going on and marrying those with basic principles of statistics. You know, don't just be influenced by a particular eye-catching story. Ask whether that story is representative. Ask what the, what the context is. Are things getting better? Are things getting worse? What are the comparisons that we can make? Um, I mean, I, I think that a lot of what journalists do, uh, what, a lot of what good journalism is, fits in very well with being a good statistician. So I don't think, I, I don't see the two fields as being at odds. And I think, but there's always a gain, I think, by acquiring some skills that other people don't have. So if you're the economist who can also tell stories, then um, you're probably going to do better by increasing your storytelling skills than by increasing your economic skills right, at the margin. And the world is full of good journalists and the world is full of good statisticians, but there's not much overlap. So if you're already a good journalist, maybe getting some statistical skills is going to really help. And if you're already a good statistician, um, you probably could learn something by watching journalists at work. Marvelous. Um, and what's next for you? Are there any other future books coming out or other podcasts we can look forward to? So this is book number nine. I'm going to I think I'm going to have a rest. Um, the, uh, it's coming out in the States in February. And it, so in the rest of the world, it's called How to Make the World Add Up. 
but in the US and Canada, it will be called the Data Detective. Because they couldn't have the same name. That would just make life too easy for me. (laughs) There will be a new series of cautionary tales coming out in probably in January, a 14-part series. So we had series one, then we had a special lockdown special. Um, So series two is coming early next year. Uh, And uh, more or less, we'll be back on air. We just finished a series. We'll be back on air in, uh, in January as well. So um, lots, lots going on, and um, I'm sure a new crazy project will occur to me very soon. Brilliant. Well, Tim, thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations with Data. It's my pleasure. Thanks for your interest. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? Why not attend News Impact Summit's Data Journalism event on Building Trust in Media? Organized by the European Journalism Center and powered by Google News Initiative, the summit will take place from the 24th to the 26th of November. It will be streamed on YouTube and the event is free to attend. You can find out more and register by visiting www.newsimpact.io. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.